I'm going to invite you to look at me, or look with me at uh, what I consider to be the most horrifying passage of Scripture in all the Word of God. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. In these verses, everyone in human history who has ever died and gone to hell will be resurrected. They'll be brought back to life, but only for the purpose of standing before the great throne of God in heaven to be condemned to the lake of fire for eternity, where they will suffer unbearable torment forever. I mean, it's a terrifying thing to consider. We, we don't like to zero in on texts like this very often. It's mind-numbing. It's paralyzing, in a sense. And there's a huge part of us that wishes it were not so. That somehow this isn't the entire story. That either eventually these who are condemned will be saved like everyone else, universalism, or that they will burn up and not suffer consciously for very long, annihilationism. In fact, it's very popular in some theological circles today to deny a literal lake of fire and to explain that the popular understanding of eternal punishment was actually invented by medieval Christians who are misinterpreting the Bible to fit with the ideas of their time. Of course, these same theologians today do not are not very forthcoming about the fact that perhaps it is they who are misinterpreting the Bible to fit with the ideas of our time. We all read the Bible through certain lenses, and it is wise for us to know what those lenses are. But I, for one, can at least sympathize with these theologians because the final judgment of God is so grim. I mean, I get why people would want to say, let's rethink this text and read it another way. I can sympathize, I say, but I could never believe what they are teaching, those who deny a literal hell and a literal lake of fire, because the meaning of the text in its context is all too clear. There are too many divine words to explain away. What we are about to read is true. Because God said it. And if we know that God said it, then we should believe it. And not only that, we should value it and affirm it and let it have its intended impact on our lives, like any other part of Scripture. In this text, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the millennial kingdom being over, Satan's last revolt being swiftly and deftly and decisively put down. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them all. And Satan himself being cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever along with the Antichrist and the false prophet. John writes in Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the last judgment of God. And I'm planning, as I've done with the other text in Revelation, working through this passage systematically, answering the questions that arise from the text. And I've, I've got a few other ones I'd like to throw in and just and, and ask as we go through this text. But this morning, because we're preparing to come around the Lord's table, I want to take a single idea from this text and look at it. There's no, there's no formal outline that I'm going to give you this morning. That'll come the next time. I want to take a single idea from the text. And the idea is this, that if you are in Christ, if you're a believer this morning, if you're a Christian, if you trusted the gospel of Christ, if you have placed your faith in his death for your sins and his resurrection, then you have no need to fear this great and final judgment of God. There's no need for fear. Now, you may have a healthy fear of this final judgment in that sense, a healthy fear, like our fear of stepping too close to the edge of a great cliff where there's a drop-off, or our fear of law enforcement, even as law-abiding citizens, we give police and judges our respect because of what they have the authority to do to us, whether we ever experience that judgment or not. In fact, if when we read this text, we do not in any way shudder with a sense of awe and profound respect, even fear, for the final judgment of God, then either we don't believe the text or we're behaving like fools. But the point I'm making is that we do not need to live in livid fear of this text because we will not be among those who at the end of verse 15 are cast into the lake of fire. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I never thought I was going to be cast into the lake of fire. In fact, I wasn't even expecting to be at this judgment anyway. So why would I fear it? Well, to be quite honest, before I started really studying this passage to prepare uh, for speaking to you about it, um, that's kind of the approach I was taking also, that all of the resurrected dead who are spoken of in these verses refer only to those who do not know God, who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. This is their judgment day. John says in verse 12, if you'll notice again, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Then in verse 13, it, sim it seems like he's simply repeating the information in a different way, perhaps for emphasis, focusing on the fact that all of the unsaved dead were there. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. It repeats that phrase. 
But in wrestling with this text, I discovered that there is a tremendous amount of debate among the commentators and the theologians about exactly who will be standing before the throne for this judgment. Certainly, all of those who are unsaved will be there. There's no doubt about that. But there are several conservative scholars who say that the biblical evidence points to the fact that all people will stand before that throne, both saved and unsaved. They will be standing there. And we shouldn't wonder why there is ambivalence about this point either. There are several end-time judgments, a few of them I put here on this chart for you, several end-time judgments spoken of in the Scriptures, and not all of the judgments are the same kind, and they don't all take place at the same time. The judgment seat of Christ seems to be a judgment that believers in Christ will face where they are rewarded for their service. And and that judgment to me makes sense uh, taking place in heaven once the church is raptured during the tribulation period as it's going uh, going, going on down on the earth. And there is also the judgment between believers and unbelievers who survived the tribulation prior to the 1,000-year reign of Christ. We call that the judgment of nations. Jesus talked about separating the sheep from the goats, in which the unrighteous are cast into hell and the righteous are welcomed into the kingdom. Now think about this. There are souls condemned to hell in the judgment of the nations who will be resurrected to face the last judgment at the great white throne. So if unbelievers take part in more than one judgment, the question is asked, why can't believers in Christ also take, play, take part in more than one judgment? And then you think about the countless numbers of believers who will be born in the millennial kingdom and are afterward taken to glory By the time of the great white throne, they haven't yet faced one judgment. Let's go a step further. How does the rest of the Bible describe the end time judgment? Well, Romans 2 was already read this morning in our hearing. Uh, Brian Smith read it for us. And Paul warns in his own words to his people, the Jews, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for honor or for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being that does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And he talks about this day that's going to happen. This passage divides the whole world into two groups. Those who will receive eternal life from God according to their works and those who will receive wrath and tribulation and distress for their works. And there is a day, a specific time in God's plan where this will take place. Now, I know some of your theological brains are exploding right now because I just uttered the words, if any of you are listening, tracking with me here, I just uttered the words, received eternal life from God according to their works. I'm only using the language of this text. This is the kind of language you read when you read judgment passages. It's not saying that we're not saved only by grace through faith. 
But when we're being judged, we're being judged for something that we did. Evaluation is based on what we've done while living in the body. That's why Revelation 20, 12, and 13 says that the dead are judged according to what they have done. Jesus used this kind of language. In Matthew 7, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And the winds blowing and the storms and Jesus's uh, parables and teaching always reference end time judgment. And then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. He faced eternal judgment as well. And his house fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And in the same way, Daniel says in the Old Testament, At that time, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, uh, will arise, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. We've been reading about that trouble in Revelation for quite some time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's eternal punishment. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, there are a lot of other statements in Scripture like this that appear to put the unrighteous on one side and the righteous on the other with two different outcomes. And the Lord will judge the living and the dead, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. In fact, one of the last promises in the entire Bible is in Revelation 22, where Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So it really does seem that no matter who you are, whether you have been in heaven or hell or in the kingdom reigning with Christ or being ruled over, whoever you are, there is a day the judgment day, the last judgment where you will appear before God as he sits in judgment on his glorious, eternal, infinite throne. So what I want to do this morning is something I don't normally do. I'm, 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 I have, there's a question mark here. I, 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 I'm not really 100% satisfied with whether or not we are going to be there at that great white throne. And there's different views of this. But this morning, I want to approach this text as if you and I Believers in Christ are going to be there, in fact, standing at the great white throne of judgment. We know that unbelievers will be there. That's certain. And I will deal with that the next time we look at this text systematically. We'll talk about the final judgment for unbelievers. But even if there is the likelihood that the correct interpretation of the text has us standing before the throne in some way, we need to consider what this can possibly mean for us who are in Jesus Christ. What will that judgment be like? Well, notice, first of all, that everyone is gathered. 
John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The dead simply means they've departed from their earthly bodies. They've been caught away. They have some kind of resurrection body. Then he says, books were opened. Now, these are not our codices, right? Where you have pages on both sides, or pages written on both sides, and you have it bound in the middle. That's, when we hear, hear the word book, that's what we think of. When, when the original people who read Revelation heard the word book, biblos, right? Uh, they didn't think of this. this. This wasn't hardly invented yet. They were thinking of a role that you open up. And so, and so the, the books were there. The roles are opened up. Well, what is written on these roles? Well, at the end of verse 12, John says that the dead were judged by what was written in the Bibloi, the roles, according to what they had done. These are books with a record of what people have done. And if, as verse 12 says, the dead are going to be judged according to what they had done, then I imagine that each person is called up to the bar and the record is read out. The record of works that were done while living in the body. When I was about 10 years old or so, there was a visiting evangelist who preached that all of our sins were going to be displayed on a big screen for the whole universe to see. And my shock at this revelation had its intended effect. And I behaved myself for most of the afternoon after that. But I don't think there's going to be some video up there of everybody's sins. In fact, if that thought really embarrasses you, just think about the fact that everybody in the world will have, would have things up there that would be similar to everybody else's sins as well. We are sinners because of the fall. But I don't think there's going to be any video screens at the great white throne, although it stands to reason that deeds will be read out. Remember what Jesus said, every idle word that people speak, they will give an account for at the day of judgment, Matthew 12, 36. So what would standing before God at the last judgment mean? for believers in Christ. I want to make four observations before we go to the table. Observation number one, being judged by God is not the same thing as being condemned by God. Romans 8, 1, we just sang about this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned. That is signed, sealed, and delivered. That is that is decided already, and praise God for that. We are justified. We have been declared righteous. We don't worry about ultimate condemnation at this great last judgment because we have already been acquitted. And that has to be clear from the very beginning, if indeed we would have a place here. Second observation, being judged according to what we have done does not necessarily mean all of the bad or sinful things that we have done. In fact, we should expect that our good works are read out. After all, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In fact, Paul is speaking to the Philippians in Philippians 4 when he tells them something very curious. He thanks them for sending money to help them. He says, you're, you're the only church that's sent time and time again. You've helped me in my need. 
And as he is praising them for this, he says in verse 7, Philippians 4, not that I seek the gift, I'm not praising you so you send me more money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul thinks of their giving as fruit that increases to their account. It's, It's actually an accounting term. As if there is a record in heaven, a ledger, if you will, that records for the last day those ministry works that we have been performed. And we know that we're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ where there are rewards given for those things that we have done for Jesus Christ to his praise and glory. But why would it be surprising to find that believers appeared before the last judgment and they have a record of good works they walked in, read out? This would not be to our praise. It would ultimately be to the praise and glory of of Jesus Christ. A third observation is this. What about the wrong things we did? The sins, especially those sins we may have committed before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Will they be read out? Will they be uh, hanging there and so that we're essentially somehow confronted with them? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the new covenant promise stated by Jeremiah and later reaffirmed for us in Hebrews 8, 12, where God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now, I know that to refuse to remember sins does not necessarily mean that God completely forgets our sins in the sense that we forget where he was like, oh, sin? I I forgot about that. I I didn't know that you ever sinned. No, that's ridiculous. God could never say that because his knowledge is infinite. He, He cannot forget anything. He knows all things. To not remember sin means that he will not confront us with our sins, with any kind of demand that we do something about them. He will not hold us accountable for our sins. So if we are standing at this judgment and works are being read out, will the kinds of sins we have committed ever be read out, even if we know we're forgiven for them? Some theologians say yes, some say no. I've never been an agnostic before, but I am on this particular point. It's very curious to me that that people would think this. But let's assume for just a moment that our sins will be read out at this judgment. I hope the thought makes us shudder. Not because we are not already forgiven, but because our sins are being read out before the very God who created us, who at one time had every right to cast us into the lake of fire, the very God against whom we sinned in the first place. And by the way, that's the God against whom we sing right now, judgment seat or not. We will be in the very presence of this God against whom when we lie or act out in sinful anger or have sinful thoughts or desires or act on those sinful desires or act selfishly or unlovingly against someone else, we are ultimately sinning against him, as David said, against you and you only have I sinned. Others are being rightly carried off to the lake of fire for those same sins. This is the God whose presence we have not sought like we should in prayer, whose help we have ignored in place of our worry, 
whose word we have taken for granted instead of eagerly desiring to know it like treasure, whose will we have been too quick to disregard when we wanted to go our own way instead. This is the God who is on the throne. But if this sobering scene causes any of us to doubt or question whether God in the end will allow us to dwell with him forever, whether we are truly forgiven or not, there is a final observation. It is this. There is another book. Another book. It's not the same book from which our deeds are being recorded and read out. It is the book of life. John says in verse 12, books were opened, literally scrolls unrolled, and there must be millions of them to record all of those works. But then he says, another book, a different kind of book was opened. A single book, which is the book of life. This isn't the only place this book is mentioned And it's not even the full title of the book. The full title of the book is given to us back in chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, that's the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the title of this book. The book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. And then in Revelation 21, 27, in describing the new Jerusalem, John says, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you know why our names are written in this other book, even before the foundation of the world? It's the same reason we're celebrating the table this morning, that we identify with its symbols. It's that Christ died for our sins. He paid for those sins already. We are welcomed into the presence of God even after standing at the last judgment, not because there were more good works read out than bad works. Think of the thief on the cross. A lifetime of sin. A moment on earth of salvation. And yet his name is in the Lamb's book of life. It's not because our good works outweigh our bad works, but because our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, showing that we are forever united with him, claimed by him, purchased by him with his blood, redeemed by him. That is the reason that we don't have to fear the last judgment. That is the reason our salvation is secure. And if indeed our sins are still to be read out, then every sin that is named, every sin that is read out from that scroll will serve to bring our Savior greater glory. For he provided the way through his cross and resurrection to pay the penalty for those sins. He paid for every one of them. So will we stand before God at the last judgment? There's maybe that possibility. Will our sins even be read out? I can't say. But either way, the idea of the scene at that great white throne of judgment, just the idea of unbelievers facing their final judgment should have a sobering effect 
on us. It should cause us to reflect upon our true relationship to God and cause us to flee from the sins for which we are forgiven. And it should cause us to have a greater love for our Savior who rescues us. And it should cause any of us here who, who knows in his heart or her heart there's not been a time when you have recognized your need for forgiveness from God and have grabbed onto the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. It, it is time for you to come to Jesus Christ before it is too late. This ought to have a sobering effect on us. Thomas Kelly, in his hymn text, in which he focuses our attention on the fact that Christ had to suffer and die for our sins, writes in his third verse, If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross, you see its nature rightly, the nature of the heinousness of sin. Here, its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. When we read a passage like this in Revelation, it ought to make us really think about how grateful we are for our salvation. And it ought to make us say, I want to get as far away from sin as I possibly can because this is where it leads. And it's only by God's grace that we are standing in judgment at that throne. I want to invite you to spend a little bit of time in silent prayer at this point. If I could have